Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're excited to bring you the news. So Derek, let's start with Gaza. Uh, Let's start with casualty numbers. Uh, Yeah, as of Thursday, uh, according to uh, health officials in Gaza, the casualty figures had risen to over 10,800 killed since uh, October 7th. Um, I believe there's still... Uh, estimating the number of wounded at somewhere over 25,000, which at this point could be uh, well over 25,000, but they've been on that number for a few days now. Um, About two-thirds of the population of Gaza is uh, estimated at this point to be displaced. There are tens of thousands of people evacuating Gaza City. Uh, We can talk about this apparent shift in the Israeli population siege of gaza city they're they're doing humanitarian pauses now uh, this was the big revelation from the biden administration today but they they've have been doing something like that for a couple of days now i think fifty thousand people where they say fifty thousand people were able to get on on wednesday fifteen thousand the, the day before that and uh, a few thousand prior to that um so uh, things in gaza city seem fairly static there are anecdotal reports of clashes between militants and the IDF uh, kind of moving deeper and deeper into the city, but relatively slowly. You'll you'll see reports like they're a kilometer further into the city than they were a day before. Uh, The AP did some satellite research or looking at satellite images and found, uh, you know, certainly evidence that the Israelis are moving deeper into the city. They're not doing it particularly quickly. And they, I think that's probably because of uh, the challenges that have been posed by uh, the tunnel network uh, in particular, they say that they are uh, trying to be methodical about sussing out where the, the tunnel entrances are uh, and destroying them. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's slow going and, and they're taking some losses. Um, I don't I don't think particularly heavy losses, uh, certainly not compared with the, the number of people that they're killing. Uh, in the air campaign, particularly, but uh, you know that's uh, that's sort of where things stand. Anything to say about evacuations or no? Uh, well, so the Biden administration made this big, splashing announcement on Thursday that they have, you know, in another smashing diplomatic success, they've convinced uh, the Israelis to open four-hour windows, localized windows, uh, in their cordoning off of Gaza City every day to allow for evacuations. The details on this are very sketchy. Um, I, I don't know if this is a general general pause, four-hour pause, and anybody in Gaza City would be free to move and try to get out at that point, or if these are going to be like, uh, we won't shoot at this neighborhood for four hours today, and then tomorrow it'll be this other neighborhood somewhere else. Uh, and if they're doing it that way, I suspect the latter, but I don't have enough detail to say either way. Uh, the Israelis pushed back actually on this announcement and said that they've been doing pauses for for several days now, and this is not a new thing. But then they seem to have corrected themselves. Barack uh, Ravid, the reporter at Axios, uh, ran the initial uh, their initial kind of pushback, and then 
uh, corrected and said he'd heard from other Israeli officials who said, no, this is something different than what they're doing. But again, details are are pretty sparse. So I don't know exactly what that means other than I guess it is some something a bit new uh, or a bit different from what they've already been doing. Derek, and what is this whole hostages for ceasefire or pause? So, yeah, this has been going on for a, a few days now. It's been reported in multiple outlets. Apparently, there are talks going on. Uh, it seems like now they're going on in Qatar, actually, in Doha, where the CIA director, Bill Burns, is there uh, at the uh, Biden administration's behest. And he often does sort of this back-channel diplomatic work on, uh, for them. Uh, the Qataris are, are trying to mediate. They have ties with Hamas, so they can uh, you know, interact with them. The Israelis are involved. And the, the terms are essentially a temporary uh, cessation, c- cessation in fighting. Uh, of up to three days in return for a limited hostage release of perhaps 10 to 15 hostages. Uh, now, the idea would be, I think, that this would be a uh, kind of trust-building exercise as much as anything else, and that it would lead to, ideally, it would lead to additional you know, trades like this, swaps of three days for a dozen hostages, and we could keep doing this. There are logistical reasons for this. Hamas says that it needs time. It needs ceasefires, uh, even limited ceasefires, to try to do the logistics that are necessary to uh, get the hostages, find them, first of all, because a number of the, the hostages are being held by other militant groups, and Hamas is not necessarily uh, 100% aware of where they are. Uh, so the logistics needed to kind of collect them and then uh, get them to a place where they could be released. They claim they they need these ceasefires to do that. Now, you know, weeks ago there was a basically all for all offer on the table that the Israelis rejected, which was full, you know, release of of hostages in return for an extended ceasefire. And they they don't want that. But this piecemeal approach has apparently gotten some traction. And I don't know how far along the negotiations are, but. Again, it's been reported in multiple outlets, so it seems like uh, there's something, uh, there's certainly something to it. Let's talk about Netanyahu and Blinken, who would appear to be expressing different opinions about the end game in Gaza. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing, the big thing to take away from this is there still is no end game for Gaza. Nobody's come to any determination of what they want to happen the day after this, uh, call it what you want, catastrophe massacre, conflict, whatever term you want to use, uh, the day after it's over, nobody seems to know what they what they want to happen, which is, is kind of frightening, given that we're, you know, a month into this and, and uh, upwards of 11,000 people have been killed uh, over, I think, if you if you take into account the people who were killed in the initial attacks by Hamas in southern Israel. So it, fairly troubling. Anyway, Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu went on ABC News in the U.S. on Monday, did an interview where he said that he imagines Israel will have overall security responsibility for Gaza for an indefinite period uh, when this is all over, which sounds an awful lot like a military occupation, uh, which is something that the Israelis have insisted they don't want to do since they pulled out and pulled their settlements out uh, in 2000, in the mid 2000s, they have sort of disavowed any responsibility for Gaza except for the blockade uh, that they've been running since 2007. Uh, So this came as kind of a shock to, I think, to a lot of observers. And it generated 
uh, some pretty quick and surprising given the the indulgence with which the Biden administration has treated Netanyahu during this uh, whole affair, uh, generated some pretty quick pushback. Antony Blinken was in Japan for a meeting of G7 foreign ministers uh, on uh, Wednesday, and he laid out a number of uh, basically red lines. I don't know how how firm these red lines are or whether the Biden administration would really be ready to push back. Uh, but he laid out a number of what seemed like red lines, at least for uh, the U.S. in terms of what happens in Gaza. At the end of this, it included no forcible displacement of Palestinians, uh, no use of Gaza as a platform for terrorism, no reoccupation of Gaza by the Israelis. Uh, no attempt to blockade or besiege Gaza, which is particularly laughable because that's been, as I say, going on since 2007, uh, and no reduction in the territory of Gaza. He also said that the Biden administration wants a Palestinian-led governance in Gaza after this, with Gaza unified with the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority. All of these things are uh, interesting on some level or another, but I think the the big the thing that is most interesting is that there is definitely daylight here uh, between what Netanyahu is talking about and what other people, uh, you know, maybe more fringe extremist people inside the Israeli government have talked about in terms of an endgame and what the Biden administration is now laying out as its position. Uh, the idea of bringing the Palestinian Authority back, this is, you know, two-state solution rhetoric. It's what you say when about this crisis when you don't have anything to say. Uh, the Palestinian Authority... Derek, very yeah, quick. Sorry, go ahead, Danny. When I p- listen to people still talk about the two-state solution, it is just very frustrating to me that it is just absolutely beyond the pale at this point. There's just zero chance that's going to happen. And to me, it just reads as a dodge and a distraction. And it's very frustrating how many organized institutions continue to trump at this. Obviously, it's not even a failed. Po- it's just not. A, it's not possible. You know, it's like, not possible. It, I mean, the the problem is. Nothing is possible, right? I mean, there's no in, there's no way to envision uh, a happy ending here at this point. There's no the one state uh, you can't imagine the Israelis and Palestinians uh, uh, either of them agreeing at this point to to a, a single state where uh, everybody has equal rights and equal representation. Um, and and the two state, yeah, just physically is impossible at this point given the the state of the West Bank. So speaking of, why don't we talk about the humanitarian situation? Yes. Uh, so there have been some efforts to uh, bolster the uh, kind of movement of humanitarian supplies into Gaza. Um, the Rafah checkpoint is is open, uh, has been open uh, to aid coming in. Uh, it, it's it's variable on any given day. I think on Wednesday they actually got 106 truckloads of aid into Gaza, which is over the UN's uh, bare minimum of 100 truckloads, uh, which is is great, uh, I guess. It's it's the bare minimum. Uh, but other days this week, you know, you've had 81 day, 25, I think, on Sunday or, or uh, over one of the, one day over the weekend. It was it was just down to 25, which is you know a drop in the bucket. It's all a drop in the bucket, really, at this point. But it's it's been very haphazard. So there are some. Uh, other projects going on here. There is the idea of uh, setting up hospital ships, for example, uh, off the coast of Gaza. I think the Italian government uh, said that it was preparing to send a ship, a hospital ship, 
to park itself off the coast of Gaza. Now the question of how you get people from inside Gaza to the hospital ship to be treated is still uh, anybody's guess. Uh, but that's one thing that's going on. This idea of a humanitarian corridor by sea from Cyprus is being discussed. Uh, there is uh, has been some movement on that. It would have to be a European Union-led uh, effort, I would assume. Uh, there, too, there are a lot of logistical questions that would have to be answered, uh, including how would you get the aid off of the ships once they get to Gaza? What's the infrastructure? And, uh, you know, are the Israelis going to stop shooting? Uh, at whatever you're doing long enough for you to to get this aid out and distribute it uh so lots of stuff that that still hasn't been worked out um but nevertheless there there are these discussions happening and what about blinken's visit to the middle east so blinken went over the weekend uh to talk to the israelis and to talk to arab leaders and the turkish government uh to to kind of I guess, try to calm things down a little bit. He had two real objectives. His first objective was to uh, push Netanyahu on the issue of the nebulous humanitarian pause. Uh, That may have made some progress, although it was not evident by the time Blinken left that anything uh, had happened there. And in fact, Netanyahu, even over the weekend, was was saying, you know, this is going to happen. We're demanding uh, the release of all the hostages as a prerequisite to even considering something like this. Uh, so it didn't look like he had made very much progress. But in the days since, it seems like maybe they're uh, moving in, in a, another direction or maybe moving a little bit more toward the idea of doing, as I said, this short-term pause in, re- in exchange for uh, some limited hostage release. Uh, the other, his other projects were uh, talking to angry governments or frightened governments or uh, otherwise uh, disordered governments in the region about what's happening in Gaza. He met with Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank. He met uh, in Amman with foreign ministers from a number of Arab countries. And that doesn't seem to have gone very well at all. Uh, they were demanding a ceasefire, a full ceasefire, not this humanitarian pause nonsense. Uh, and Blinken had to tell them to get bent. Effectively, that's not the Biden administration's position. It's also not uh, something the Israeli government is prepared to consider. Uh, so that didn't go very well. Then he went off to Turkey, where he was snubbed by uh, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who uh, pre-announced before Blinken got there that he would be out of town. <laughs> Blinken was there and would not be meeting with him. Uh, Blinken did meet with the uh, Turkish foreign minister and some other officials, I think, but uh, I don't think they made uh, very much headway or even probably had a particularly pleasant time. Uh, Spencer Ackerman, friend of the show, had a a, a thing at his, uh, uh, for the nation actually, and at his Forever Wars newsletter about the uh, humiliating failure of Blinken's trip, he, he called it. Uh, which uh, I would, you know, recommend people read if they want a full recap. But it was it was a pretty dismal uh, effort, and I think that's part of the reason why Burns got sent over immediately afterwards was because they realized that Blinken had had kind of not gotten the job done. And Burns, as I say, is is often used in this kind of back channel diplomatic way by the administration. He does have experience as a diplomat. He's also as CIA director potentially able to say things and talk to people who uh, that, that Blinken would not be able to talk to because, uh, you, you know, you'd be worried about things like congressional oversight that, that don't apply to the CIA director the way they do to the Secretary of State. So there are a, a number of reasons why they, they like to use Burns as this kind of troubleshooter. Love it. <laughs> you love to see it. Um, about the uh, diplomatic fallout for, that Israel has experienced as a result of their war. 
Uh, yes. Um, so this is the last time I checked on this, and there may have been developments in the meantime, but uh, the governments of South Africa and Chad uh, this week joined several other countries in withdrawing their senior diplomatic representatives. In South Africa's case, it was an ambassador. It was uh, the Charge d'Affaires in the case of, of Chad from Israel. Uh, that includes Bahrain, Chile, Colombia, Honduras, Jordan, and Turkey. Uh, and as I say, there may be others that I've just missed. Uh, the Bolivian government remains the only one that has cut diplomatic ties altogether with Israel over what's happened in Gaza. But uh, there, there is this kind of bubbling up of, of dis disenchantments. And I think uh, you will probably see more of this as the, as the conflict moves forward. Thanks, Eric, for all your updates on Gaza and the Gaza war. Uh, let's move on to Syria and let's talk about the recent U.S. attack there. Yes. Uh, so uh, Wednesday evening, the Pentagon announced that it had attacked another weapons depot in eastern Syria uh, connected with these Iranian-backed militias that operate in Syria and Iraq and have attacked U.S. forces in both countries. Um Dozens of times at this point since October 17th, which I believe was the uh, the date of the the uh, explosion at Shifa Hospital in Gaza. Um, according to the, the U.S. military, there have been more more than 40 such attacks uh, since October 17th. And so they've uh, they carried out uh, a strike like this uh, almost two weeks ago at this point, not quite two weeks ago. Uh, and then they carried out another one, apparently, Wednesday evening or uh, early Thursday morning, local time, I guess. This one, unlike the first one, apparently had some fatalities attached. At least nine people uh, were killed, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is one of the sources people use for the for casualties in Syria. Um, so I, I suspect uh, that that's a little bit uh, it was clear that they had calibrated that initial strike to, to try not to kill anybody. Uh, because of the risk that that might cause escalation rather than de-escalation. Uh, I'm not sure if they were a little more kind of gloves off with this one or if this was not intended to kill anybody, but did anyway. Uh, but regardless, this is definitely an escalation and will probably, I think, uh, spur more attacks rather than deterring them. Oh, that never happens. Yeah. Let's move on to Yemen. And uh, the Houthis appear to have downed a U.S. drone. Yes, they shot down a Reaper drone off the Yemeni coast on Wednesday that they claimed were was conducting surveillance. Reapers are, uh, you know, the kind of the drones that can be used either for surveillance or they can be armed and, and used in uh, drone strikes. In this case, it seems to have been conducting surveillance. Uh, we don't know why the U.S. has long had a counterterrorism operation going on in Yemen related to Al Qaeda. Particularly, uh, there are some Islamic State elements in Yemen, but but it's more Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So the drone may have been uh, tasked to that operation. It may also have been scouting the launch sites or re doing reconnaissance of the launch sites that the Houthis have been using uh, to fire missiles and drones at Israel, which they've done several times in, in recent weeks. Um, so it's possible that they were doing that. Either way, they they shot it down. There hasn't been any response from the U.S. other than confirming. The shootdown. Uh, fortunately, I think the I don't think the drone had a, a wife or children, so uh, we're not we're not terribly worried about its family. But uh, yeah, that's uh, another place where things could certainly escalate. The U.S. still has personnel in Yemen and government held parts of Yemen. Again, part of this counterterrorism mission. 
Uh, so you're always looking for places where this could explode into a more regional conflict, and, and Yemen is definitely still one of those. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk about now uh, Hassan Nasrallah, who's basically the head of Hezbollah, uh, the speech he just gave. Yes, obviously Lebanon, uh, the Lebanese-Israeli border has already been the, the scene of a, a number of attacks back and forth since the, the situation in Gaza uh, opened up on October 7th. It is still the fault line that is most likely to, to escalate into another front of the war or you know, just a full-blown uh, war between Hezbollah and, and you know, Iran as its backer and Israel. Uh, Nasrallah gave his first public address about Gaza uh, on Friday, first time since October 7th. This was long awaited, uh, anticipated, feared, whatever you want to, whatever term you want to use, because of the possibility that he might announce uh, a, or might declare war effectively on Israel. He did not. Um, he said that Hezbollah is open to the possibility of escalation, uh, but that it is going to continue to do what it's already been doing and kind of engaging the Israelis on the northern border and on, on their northern border and keeping them uh, preoccupied. But it does not intend to get further involved unless the Israelis uh, do something that that pulls them into the conflict. Uh, I, I think this was, you know, people had considered this probably the most likely outcome, but I don't know how sure anybody was of that. Uh, Lebanon is, of course, uh, just a complete basket case at this point. Economically, politically, uh, Hezbollah and, and Nasrallah may have felt uh, that they don't really have the support that they would need to get involved in this war in a bigger way. Uh, though, as I say, they, you know, he did uh, leave open the possibility of uh, further escalation if if things develop in that direction. Given the state of Lebanon, I see no possibility for them to actually get involved in this. It would, it would be very difficult for them. It would be difficult and it would be, I think, detrimental to their position in Lebanon because I, I think, you know, pr for, for most Lebanese who are, you know, barely scraping by the idea of going to war with, with Israel because one faction in the Lebanese political system decides to do that is, is probably not very palatable. Uh, here's a very interesting story. Uh, in Afghanistan, the U.S. leaves and opium cultivation declines. Yeah, this is a sh shocker. The U.N. Office on Drugs and Crime released a report over the weekend finding that Afghan farmers cultivated uh, just under 11,000 hectares of opium in 2023. That's just uh, compared to over 230,000 hectares that they cultivated in 2022. So apparently... You take the CIA out of a country and they stop making heroin, which I didn't know was possible, but that seems to be the connection here. Uh, that's the, the finding of the report. Uh, this is they're attributing it, uh, I think, with good reason to the Taliban's crackdown on opium production. But the report also notes that there is a, a huge economic cost here to farmers who are, you know, again, Afghanistan, you want to talk about economic basket cases, uh, is uh, just completely crippled the, the economy of that country is completely crippled uh and so you you talk about farmers who are you know in many ways barely getting by or not even getting by uh that takes a lot of revenue because opium is obviously a a, a big cash crop and so that takes a lot of revenue out of their hands and there's you know if you have any interest in stabilizing that country uh you would think internationally it would be time to kind of go back in and and provide these people with another way of of surviving other than opium uh, cultivation 
Uh, but that would, of course, probably require recognizing the Afghan government and the U.S. Uh, other Western governments don't want to do that. So, uh, nope, they don't want to do that. Remains to be seen. Uh, thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about uh, Myanmar, where there has been uh, a major offensive. Yeah, this has been going on since October 27th, I believe. The uh, Brotherhood Alliance, which is a, a coalition of three ethnic rebel groups, the uh, Tang National Liberation Army, the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army, and the Arakan Army announced a new offensive in Shan State, uh, which is sort of northern, northeastern, I believe, uh, Myanmar borders China. Um, and they've been wildly successful, apparently. They, they've taken over uh, 100 military outposts. Uh, they've seized a number of major highways that are that run into China and are crucial kind of commercial arteries for, for Myanmar, China trade uh, they've taken a number of border towns and, and it's been somewhat surprising to see this level of success certainly the Myanmar junta seems to be on the back foot here i mean they, they've uh, i think engaged in some airstrikes against these groups but they don't seem to have any presence on the ground or at least not enough of one to try and dislodge these uh, militias or these rebel forces from the places that they've uh, they've taken over. So uh, it's an uncertain situation. Getting news out of Myanmar is is difficult anyway, uh, especially in, in remote parts of, of Myanmar, like the border region. Uh, so it's been it's been difficult to track. But uh, it, it does seem to be uh, a very serious situation. There's been a lot of displacement. Uh, the Chinese government has gotten involved because, again, this is uh, right on the border. So, uh, you know, they're they're kind of in negotiations with Myanmar officials about finding a way out of this situation. Uh, so a lot of lot of kind of uh, upheaval happening here. And I don't know how much of a threat it is to the junta, but it's certainly a threat to maybe, you know, you talk about dismembering parts of Myanmar and, and picking that state apart or, uh, you know, some of these rebel groups uh, establishing themselves as effectively governments in some of these places uh, if they can't be dislodged. And so, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, lot of unknowns at this point. Let's talk about Sudan. Uh, similarly, there have been uh, advances there. Yes, uh, the Rapid Support Forces. Uh, this has been reported. This was reported this week in, in multiple outlets: Al Jazeera, the Washington Post, some some other places. Uh, the Rapid Support Forces group, the paramilitaries who are fighting the Sudanese military, uh, are apparently on the cusp of of taking control of virtually the entire Darfur region. Uh, they have driven the military out of. Uh, Central Darfur State, West Darfur State, and South Darfur State. Uh, the U.S. has been sounding the alarm about a potential RSF attack on the capital of North Darfur State, Al-Fashir, for a- at least a week now. Uh, Al-Fashir is populated by not just its sort of resident population, but uh, hundreds of thousands of people that have been who have been displaced from other parts of Sudan. So an attack on that city could be could be quite devastating. Uh, the Sudanese military in many of these places seems to have just broken and, and fled. Uh, a number of soldiers have apparently crossed the border into Chad to seek refuge. Uh, this is this is dangerous uh, because of the RSF's uh, roots and its base of support. The RSF grew out of uh, or was kind of cultivated out of the Janjaweed militia, which is an Arab militia network in Darfur that was responsible for a lot of the the atrocities committed during the Darfur genocide and attacks on non-Arab populations, non-Arab communities in Darfur. The RSF is the sort of legal 
legally sanctioned or legally, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, openly embraced by the government, let's say part of the Janjaweed, it had become, you know, became a, a, a functioning arm of the uh, security apparatus in Sudan. Uh, and so it has ties back into that militia and it's been uh, implicated in uh, already in this conflict, a number of ethnic attacks in Darfur. The, there were, uh, there was a report, I think, uh, in Reuters that refugees of the RSF's attacks uh, in West Darfur were reporting ethnic, ethnically driven violence. Um, again, attacks on non-Arab communities. So a lot of, a uh, lot of, I think, uh, kind of nervousness about where this is heading and, and potentially uh, returning to the the battle days of the uh, the Darfur genocide and for these uh, these non Arabs in this region. So let's move on to Russia, even though no one cares anymore. Uh, and somehow Putin, who recently, Derek, I heard, had a heart attack and died. Yes, he is dead, but he's also running for re-election. Yeah, I, I, well, I knew you were worried about this, and there's been a lot of speculation. Is he going to run? Is he not going to run? He is going to run for re-election, so I can put your minds at ease. Uh, Vladimir Putin will run for re-election. I'm, I'm not ready to make any firm predictions, but I think he'll probably be able to eke out uh, a win in in the uh, what I'm sure will be a freely fairly contested election. Um, this does mean that he will be sticking around, barring any you know any future deaths from heart attack or other things. Uh, he'll be sticking around as president until at least 2030. Uh, he has uh, told people, I guess this is what I saw reported, that only he can shepherd Russia through this perilous time, uh, which I guess is is nice. He's the cause of a lot of the peril. Uh, but I guess he wants to to do the right thing and, and stick around and whatever that means. <laughs> Putin, Putin's known for doing the right thing. So, yeah, he's I the think, cause of and solution to all of life's all problems. Life problems. Uh, so how is uh, let's just, let's stay in the region uh, and let's uh, let's talk about Ukraine. Uh, and it appears that the West is coming around to our position <laughs> only a few years too late. And they are pushing for peace talks. So, Derek, uh, let let the listeners know what's going on. Yeah, this was a, a, a grenade that NBC News kind of threw out on Friday. Uh, they reported that uh, U.S. And, and European officials, they didn't get into specifics, but uh, said that there had been conversations between these officials and their Ukrainian counterparts, kind of preparing them for having to, to cut a deal, like a peace deal with Russia. And what are you going to be ready to sacrifice as part of these negotiations? Because I guess we're now talking about this. Uh, now that the uh, counteroffensive has, has largely failed, now that the war in Gaza is sucking uh, attention away from Ukraine, now that uh, you know U.S. politics are once again in a state of chaos uh, and Congress is maybe not going to authorize any new military aid for Ukraine. There's a lot of questions about how sustainable this war effort actually is. I think we mentioned last week that Valery Zaluzhny, none other than the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian military, uh, indicated that the war is a stalemate at this point. He was, you know, quickly, uh, that was quickly rejected by the Ukrainian and Russian governments. But there does seem to be a sense that this is no longer the slam dunk uh, Ukrainian victory that we once thought it was. Uh, and that the time may be coming to to start preparing to what I think would would essentially be trading land for peace. You'd be trading these regions that uh, the Russians are currently occupying with maybe some adjustments here or there uh, for some kind of peace settlement 
uh, even though you know it, it may not be a long lasting piece, it would at least be uh, some a halt to the the festivities for some period of time. A piece of a time, a piece for our yeah. time in in, yeah. in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, there is, I should say, there's no, I mean, there's no indication at this point that the Russians are interested in in negotiating. There, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, as soon as this report came out, he's been telling everybody he's not prepared to negotiate uh, and is insisting that the war can still be won. And, you know, things are uh, a little bleak, but we have plans. We know what we're doing. Just, uh, just trust us. So, I mean, I'm not saying that, that any of this is, is an advanced stage, but uh, the NBC report did say, uh, you know, these Western officials, these unnamed Western officials are maybe just giving the Ukrainians until the end of the year before they really sit them down and have, uh, have a serious talk about uh, what the future looks like. Uh, let's talk about the EU, uh, which appears to be cogitating upon expanding into Eastern Europe and uh, basically Russia's Western border regions. Uh, yeah, the European Commission issued its annual report on who's been naughty and who's been nice, basically, who's allowed to have their EU candidacies advance and who's treading water. And it had some some bad news, I guess, for uh, a number of Balkan states, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kosovo, Serbia. The, the uh, opinion was that they have not uh, done what they need to, to do to kind of get their, their candidacies advanced. Turkey also, although that comes as no surprise because Turkey, uh, as I think I've said on this show, is never, ever going to be allowed into the EU. Um, they did recommend, however, uh, that the candidacies of three three states be advanced with the caveat that there are still there's still work that all three of them need to do in areas like corruption, human rights, etc. And those countries were Moldova and Ukraine, both of which could be uh, advanced to uh, basically full membership talks uh, again if they kind of meet this uh, these final conditions that uh, the the commission mentioned. Uh, and Georgia, which could be promoted to candidate status, which is further behind, I believe, than uh, Moldova and Ukraine, but nevertheless is still, uh, I guess, on the right track. They get an A for effort from the, the commission. Now, the commission only recommends these things. The European Union member states will meet next month to discuss the recommendations and whether to adopt them. Uh, none of these, you know, none of these things is a full membership decision. It is simply advancing the candidates a little further, the the, the accession process uh, potentially a little further down the road. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about Colombia and the uh, peace talks with the FARC and the EMC, which <laughs> have been suspended. They've been suspended. Yeah, good news all around. The the FARC, uh, the Estado Mayor Central faction, which is a, uh, a FARC faction. FARC, you know, of course, did, uh, did a peace deal with the uh, the Colombian government several years ago, but there were dissident elements within FARC that uh, rejected it or have come to reject it since then, mostly because uh, the Colombian government has has failed to implement a lot of its terms. Uh, the EMC is one of those factions. It, it has been uh, in peace talks that began last month, middle middle, middle of October, with the Colombian government uh, as part of Gustavo Petro's overall peace initiative. They announced on Sunday that they're suspending uh, their peace talks without explaining why, except to make some vague mention of uh, government, the government failing to keep some unknown promises 
to the EMC. Now, the this uh, these peace talks also involved a ceasefire that is scheduled to run through January 15th uh, and could be extended, but uh, at this point, that probably seems unlikely. But the EMC did say that they're still honoring the ceasefire. So I guess, you know, on that basis, there is uh, the possibility that these peace talks could be revived uh, sometime between now and, and mid-January, but uh, who knows? It's a setback for Petro, certainly. Uh, you know, the EMC is one of, I think, the two largest ex-FARC factions, and they're a major, uh, you know, one of the country's major armed groups. So it was important for for Petro's initiative to to get them into this process. And uh, this is definitely, a, as I say, a setback. Let's end on some really classic AP good news. And that has to do, of course, with, with the climate. Uh, how's, how's climate doing, Derek? Have we solved climate it's, change? Uh, yeah, it's, we're, we're getting there. It's, it's great. Uh, the Copernicus Climate Change Center, or Climate Change Service, rather, the European Union's uh, agency, uh, announced uh, this week that data from January through October, and this is going to come as no surprise to anybody, shows that 2023 is virtually certain to be the hottest year it has ever recorded. Uh, it, it said, moreover, that if you incorporate data from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which goes back, uh, they've done research going back thousands of years, this could be the hottest year uh, in the last 125,000 years on this planet. So, uh, we're doing great. Uh, it's really going well. El Nino obviously is a big contributor to this, but it's it's El Nino combined with the effects of unchecked, still largely unchecked carbon emissions. Speaking of which, there was another report this week from the Stockholm Environment Institute finding that major fossil fuel producers, Russia, Saudi Arabia, the United States, there, uh, there are others, those are the big three, are still increasing their fossil fuel production at a time when they should be actually decreasing their fossil fuel production, like even leveling off would not be enough. Uh, but we're still, we're still pumping out more oil, gas, and coal. And that essentially, you know, according to the report, ensures uh, that the fabled 1.5 degrees Celsius warming threshold that was set out in the 2015 Paris Agreement uh, is impossible to reach and probably... We won't even be able to stay under the two-degree threshold, the more reasonable one, uh, which means climate change effects are going to get very bad, you know, much worse, I think, than anybody is prepared for. Uh, for the, the large fossil fuel producers, their argument is basically that the planet still needs fossil fuels. It will continue to need fossil fuels uh, for some time, even as we're transitioning to alternative sources of energy. And because they already have the, the capacity to extract these things, they can do it more cleanly and less disruptively than smaller producers. Uh, and so it should be the smaller producers who, who stop and bear the brunt of these cuts. Of course, the smaller producers want the money that comes with extracting and selling oil, gas, and coal. So they have no incentive to go along with an arrangement like that. And in fact, they would argue it is uh, categorically unfair for the major producers to just uh, keep on keeping on and expect these smaller countries to uh, to take the weight, and that's where things stand, which means uh, you know nothing is is going to get done. You know, Derek, I, I think Americans have that can-do spirit, and I think we'll be able to solve it. So I'm not as pessimistic as you. I think two two degrees is a, is nothing. We can get to three, four degrees of warming. I have every confidence like, in, in us trying. to Come get on, it done. Yeah. All our listeners should go out this weekend and eat some McDonald's, drink some soda, and just drive. Let your car just let your car like idle in the driveway or whatever. It's great. 
Good stuff. Uh, all right, everyone. Talk to you later. Bye, Derek. Bye.